and it's also opened me up to the idea that actually the world is is um, much more mysterious than we necessarily think it is. You know, this sort of Western scientific rationalist kind of way of thinking. I mean, maybe not quite so much now, but um, you don't you don't get the opportunity necessary to explore more esoteric kind of ideas. And I think in a in a in a sense, if I had probably been trained formally as an economist. Um, I wouldn't have been open necessarily to the idea of economic cycles. Are you looking to take charge of your life? Would you like to learn how to become a master of your mind and body to make better decisions? Welcome to Vibe, Mind, Body and Entrepreneurship Podcast. I'm your host, Binky Lumba, a real estate investor. I love connecting with people and educating them on how to create a passive income stream. And I am Raju Datla, and I help realtors, real estate investors increase their revenue. I also enjoy connecting with people and building long-term relationships. We bring industry professionals, thought leaders, and experts to discuss how our mind and body plays a big role in our daily decisions, big or small. Through this podcast, our purpose is to make people aware and educate them to make wise decisions for their investments and take correct steps towards their entrepreneurial journey. Are you ready for a great episode? Please keep listening. We have a free gift for you at the end. And also, don't forget to subscribe to our show. Afternoon, everyone. Today, we got Akhil Patel. A little bit about Akhil's background. He's been working with Philip J. Anderson for over a decade to produce unique research that combines an in-depth understanding of business, real estate, and stock market cycle. Akhil has professional experience in audits, central government, and international banking, and has worked on a range of issues from reviewing large infrastructure, public-private partnerships, PVPs, uh, deals to help establish the UK's three billion pounds international climate fund. He has two master's degrees in finance and public policy, and a first degree in classic in the classics from Oxford. He's also currently a principal policy advisor to the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Welcome, Akhil. Thank you very much for having me. Tell us about your background. How did you get interested in economics? I studied classics at Oxford, so, so you know, kind of ancient history and philosophy and literature and, and so on. Um, I, mean, I think it would be fair to say when I left university in 2000, I knew not very much about economics. I haven't, well, to this date, have not had a single minute of formal economics training. Um, but I, I, I was uh, interested in the work of this American economist called Henry George, uh, uh, which who was introduced to me back in uh, at school in, in the mid 90s. Um, and the reason that I was interested in him was, was he he wrote this book called Progress and Poverty. And he asked uh, two simple questions uh, it, it, when he was writing. And he was actually writing in the 1870s. And the two questions he asked, and they're very relevant today, were why do uh, economies um, go through periods of boom and bust? And why is there increasing inequality, even though societies are getting much more prosperous uh, and, you know, all this technology is making, you know, uh, the you know, people live much better, longer lives. But yet people, the difference between those who are rich and those who are poor 
is getting wider and wider. I thought those were two very interesting questions. They were very interesting in, in the 2000s when I became interested in rereading Henry George. Uh, and then, I mean, they're you know even more relevant uh, today. Um, and so when the financial crisis happened, um, I kind of didn't really believe all the explanations for why it had happened. And Henry George said that actually, you know, economies go through boom and bust because of essentially speculation in real estate. And, you know, that gets over the top. It draws in the banking system. When that turns down, the banks, you know, have a crisis. Um, and uh, and once that happens, it takes ages to get out of and, you know, have all the problems that you go through. And the global financial crisis was merely the latest iteration. So I, I said, this is, you know, clearly something here. People aren't really spotting it. Um, so let me try and um, you know do something about it. Uh, partly because my family's business had a difficult time after two thousand eight, uh, and also because you know I thought, well, if you can spot when the crisis is happening, you can sort of position yourself well, and then you when the when you get to the bottom of the market, you to hopefully have the confidence to jump in and buy at the bottom and, and ride the cycle all the way to the top. So that's sorry, it's a rather long-winded answer. That's how I got into economics. Your family background, obviously, you said was in business, right? Yeah. Mostly in business. So how did you, like, what was your childhood that led you to the more academic path? Uh, well, you know, from an Indian family, you have to always have to do your homework and, you know, right. education before anything else. And so I think when I was about seven years old, um, my school took me to to watch the Oxford versus Cambridge rugby match. Uh, in, in Twickenham Stadium, which is in London. And uh, Cambridge uh, wear light blue and Oxford wear dark blue. And I, I really liked the Oxford shirt. Uh, and so I, I, from that moment, decided that I was going to study at Oxford University. So I suppose the academic path was, um, was set at a relatively young age. Did you play rugby? Yes, I did. I did play rugby at school uh, till the age of 18. Great. So you wanted to tell us about that experience? Rugby is so similar to football here in US, but yeah. I know rugby players, they have different mindset because the way the game is. Did you feel any difference before and after? I wasn't really given a choice. I went to a school where it wasn't really, <laughs> everyone had to play sports and the only sports that were available were rugby in the, in the winter, in the spring and cricket and athletics in the summer. Um, and, you know, there was no choice about doing it. It was, it was, it was quite a, it was a, it was, it was a very interesting school. You had to basically do everything. So, um, you know, you had to play sports, you had to obviously do your studies. Um, you had to sing in the choir. You had to try to play an instrument. Uh, when we were 10, you had to go, you had to learn how to sail um, and how to do mountain climbing. So it was in that sense, it was quite a rounded education. Um, I mean, they they really liked rugby because it's quite a collective game. It's mm -hmm. not it's not particularly individualistic, um, and it's also you need to be you know to a certain extent you need to be quite tough. Um, you know, to be quite courageous to play it. It's a good game for for kind of emphasising the collective, the the courage, um, and also. But actually, you know, I mean, as and you mentioned sports in general. I mean, you know, in sports you kind of know the rules of the game, you know the objective, you kind of know what you have to do to get better. And so the question then is, if you want to get better, are you prepared to focus, to practice, to, you know, when you're actually in the in the moment of 
of playing the game? Are you in the present moment? Are you, you know, watching the ball? Are you doing all that kind of stuff? Or are you thinking about something else? And if you do that, then you don't, then you don't perform. So you get to, I get, I guess you get to learn lessons very quickly because, you know, there's no excuse. You either, you either practice and you, and you uh, are present or you're not. And if you are, then you do well. And if you're not, then you, then you don't. Yeah. Isn't that the same scenario in life too? If you're present, you're making better decisions or doing better. No, that's very true. It's just that in, in, in life, you can, you can kind of excuse yourself a little bit, but you say, oh, well, that happened and this happened and so on. In sports, you don't have that excuse. And it teaches you that actually you have to be quite self-reliant. Talking about childhood, who would you say was your idol? It's a good question. I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily have any, um, any one person. I mean, obviously, I got from my parents um, a very strong work ethic um you know my parents themselves didn't go to university um and you know they they wouldn't i think they would be the first to say they weren't particularly academic though my father actually probably had he had he been able to and had the opportunities he probably would have um you know done very well at university um but you know they they worked hard they were very sort of they have a lot of integrity very honest in the way that they go about their lives also the school i went to was a bit unusual in the sense that i was introduced from a very young age to things like vedic philosophy i mean you know this is a kind of a, a posh private school in england um you know and the first language that we studied was sanskrit and uh, at the age of four and then you know we had sort of philosophy lessons and we introduced to kind of vedic philosophy and and the upanishads and the Gita and all that kind of thing and then uh, a bit later we started studying ancient greek and, and latin and so i kind of was introduced to plato um and i think to a certain extent i wouldn't say direct influences because you don't necessarily think about plato every time you're trying to make a decision but right. you're subconsciously um uh, that that's been very big so the i suppose i'd say i'd have a fairly spiritual straight philosophical kind of outlook on life uh, and that comes from that yeah. and it's also opened me up to the idea that actually the world is is um much more mysterious than we necessarily think it is you know this sort of western scientific rationalist kind of way of thinking i mean maybe not quite so much now but um you don't you don't get the opportunity necessary to explore more esoteric kind of ideas and i think in a in a in a sense if i had probably been trained formally as an economist um i wouldn't have been open necessarily to the idea of economic cycles and the fact that you know, there is an underlying order to the economy that can, to a certain extent, um, be studied and be and be packaged up so that you can make um, long term forecasts. Um, so I think all of those things in direct or indirect ways have, have been quite big influences on me. So this theosophical studies that you did, that was in your school years. Is that correct? Uh, yes, mainly. But, you know, I studied when I studied classics at Oxford, I spent um, several terms studying Plato as well. So there was that. So that was during school or in the college? It was both. When you're doing multiple things, you're learning about the, uh, I would say, theosophical aspect of life. Your mind opens up much more and that you're seeing things a little bit differently than the average person is not more at the surface, at the material level. Did you notice that or did you just take it for granted? I can see the holistic picture better than everybody else. Maybe that's the reason you're excelling at everything, whatever you're doing. Uh, well, it's very kind of you to say that. I'm not sure that's necessarily true, but um, 
No, I look. I, 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 you know, I, I wouldn't say that uh, I know everything. Um, certainly, and I mean, I think Socrates was the person who said he. The only thing that he knew was that he knew nothing. Um, exactly. And uh, and so I kind of, I sort of have that sort of idea. I mean, I think the more you get into a subject, the more you realise how much you don't know. Exactly. Um, and you no, know, I did. I did. You know, I was aware from a relatively young age that, um, you know, I was studying things that weren't normal i mean when you're a teenager the fact that you're not normal uh, is not a good thing you know you think oh i'm a bit weird is this a bit weird it's a bit strange mm -hmm. and then when you get a bit more mature and and you see how um you know how uh, in, to a certain extent how enriching your thinking can be if it's the product of different influences you know is a good thing but you i think you you know we're always we're all whether we know it or not so i think on a journey in terms of self-development self-actualization or whatever you want to call it um and um you know there's always plenty more to learn and even from you know as i as i've got older i've come to realize even from fairly um on the surface it fairly unlikely sources um so so you know i suppose that i suppose the danger of having studied a lot of different things is that you you might you might lose a bit of simplicity to your thinking you know you're kind of always overthinking things you're you're it, it gets a bit too much and sometimes you need a way of just cutting through that to get to the essence of whatever it is so i suppose it it can it can work both ways i think i'm the opposite i just feel like when you're studying more it's just like you figure things out a little bit better and just your uh, thinking is more simplistic and the other thing that you said, like Socrates, he said, I do not know anything. Yeah, the more you go in depth, the more you learn, you realize yeah. you do not know everything. There's no possible way that you can know everything in this life. And once you start thinking, I know everything, then you stop learning. And that's, that's the end for you. I, I entirely agree. Um, I, sorry, the, what if, when you said that your, your, first, your first point, the more you learn, the, you know, you it become the simpler it gets. I think I think you know I think that's true, and I have found that myself. What what I would say though is you probably consciously or not have a sort of a, a you know a mental framework, a way of um, putting all these new ideas into some coherent structure in your own mind, which then gives you the simplicity. And I, I've actually noticed that myself when um, I've studied economic cycles, and so I've got this sort of grand sort of idea about how the economy works from the point of view of the economic cycle. Uh, and and so I'm able to interpret all sorts of interesting new data, but in the context of the overall cycle. And so, you know, where a lot of people, I think, probably get a bit confused or see a lot of noise or they're not really sure how to contextualize a piece of information, I feel that um, I've got something there which enables me to kind of figure out how that how that little piece fits into the overall puzzle. I'm quite good at building links between things that you might think don't have anything to do with each other. Mm. Um, and I suppose the, one of the reasons for that is if you've been exposed to enough different influences and different ideas growing up, um, then you can, then you can uh, make those connections. And obviously it also probably depends on a bit on how my brain works. Right. Um, but I think one thing I picked up from my my four years studying classics at Oxford um, from my tutors um, was the idea that the human experience, regardless of whether you're talking about a 
you know, a Roman centurion in in northern Africa in 200 AD, or you're talking about a, I don't know, a, a person in in you know New Mexico in 21st century America. Ultimately, the human experience is very common. So you know, we all want we all want to a certain extent to better our to better ourselves. We all want you know mostly to start a family. We want to provide for them. We want our children to be secure. We want them to have a better lives than that we did um we want to look after our parents we want to um you know we want to be well liked by our friends uh, and so on and that i think we sometimes forget how universal the human experience is because we get some somewhat blinded by cultural biases or things which are ultimately just superficialities um and so i suppose that is something that i took very clearly from from my my education and from the things that I've read over the over the years. Would you have any suggestion for uh, the listeners? Most people are in the survival mode. When I say survival mode, it's just like taking care of their families, their kids, or climbing the corporate ladder, and then forgetting the, the real essence of life, or seeing the bigger picture, that there's much more to that than just living in a bubble. I mean, it's difficult not to, if you're, you know, you're having to work hard and you get home, you have to look after the children and, you know, there's all these activities and you've got to, you know, when you're a parent, I mean, not that I am a parent, but I, I've seen my sister and her children, you know, par parents are sort of chauffeurs for their children, taking them from A to B and back again and so on. Um, I, it's, it's difficult. I, you know, ultimately, I don't know if there is any one answer the only thing i suppose you could say and this goes back again to something we discussed earlier is in whatever you're doing if you're totally present um then i think you will find this level of satisfaction uh regardless of almost of what you're doing and so you won't necessarily resent the fact that you're not having enough time to um do other things because you know ultimately we're quite busy we do get up caught up in in jobs, in 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 relationships, in 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 activity, we don't have quite so much time to sit back and reflect or in, enjoy nature or whatever it is. Uh, and you can certainly sometimes develop a sense that you know things aren't going very well, and you're not you're not doing very well, and you should be doing something else. But I think to permanently live with that kind of emotion is also not particularly helpful. Uh, I, I found. I mean, and I say this as someone who has spent you know good chunks of my career thinking well, this is not going in the right direction i'm not moving forwards you know other people are doing better than i am um you know i'm not making enough money or whatever it is that uh, that happens to be the thing that you, that gives you a sense of lack um and i you know ultimately i think that if you indulge that it's kind of never ending it's never going to be satisfied here everybody says or live in the moment and you're using the terminology more like be present. Yeah. So yeah. be present or living in a moment. What does it mean? Well, for me, and, you know, I appreciate that we might have different ways of expressing it. For me, it's, you know, whatever is in front of you, you give your attention to it 100%. I agree on that 100%. But for an average person, because they have so much baggage, like, trillion thoughts are going on. Most of the people are never present in the present moment. I right? think it's just practice, isn't it? Yeah, so that's what I'm getting to. How do you practice? Well, I mean, this is, 
I mean, it, it's just, I, I think it's no more complicated than you just kind of allow the thoughts to bombard you, you don't follow them and they will subside. There's actually a very interesting, um, uh, I don't know if you know the, um, the story in the Odyssey um, of the sirens. Do you, have you, you know, have you, I don't know if you're familiar with the tale of the Odyssey, you know, so Odysseus is a Greek yeah. uh, hero. He's trying to get back home to his wife and his son. And he spends and he's he's angered the gods because he was part of the of the of the team that uh, sacked the city of Troy. And so some of the gods are a bit angry at him. And so they make sure that he doesn't get home. So he spends 10 years wandering around the Mediterranean, encountering all it's a mythological tale, encountering all of these fabulous um, problems, should we say. Uh, and one of them is that they sail close to the. Um, to this island where there, I think it's an island, uh, where there are these these kind of birds, well, half bird, half human sirens, uh, and they they sing this amazing, uh, make this amazing music, and apparently, if you hear it, you'll be socially transfixed, and you won't want to, you won't, you'll want to go to, onto the island, and you just will want to listen to it. And I think you then, um, then you'll die, and um, and and so Odysseus tells his uh he firstly gives his crew um earwax to put plug their ears so they can't hear it themselves and he tells them to row but what he does is he says to them um can you uh keep my ears unblocked but tie me to the mast and whatever i say however much i struggle um uh, don't don't untie me and let me go after it and so he, they're saying through and he's hearing this song and he really wants to go and he's struggling and he's ordering them to, to untie him so he can go and he can go to the island and listen to it and and the and the point of the story is that it's almost irresistible but he gets through it and as soon as he gets through it the sirens die because he's the first human being who's been able to resist uh, and their their power is gone and then they die and that is for me an allegorical tale saying that if you are you know if you're being bombarded by thoughts and temptations and you want to follow this and you want to follow that and if you just don't let yourself do it. Ultimately, over time, they won't uh, affect you in, in quite the same way. But, but do you do anything like practices that you help you through that? I, I meditate. I mean, meditation is a great practice for, uh, sorry, I should say I, I periodically meditate. I, I wouldn't say I do it every day, twice a day as I'm supposed to, but um, that is, you know, that's a very good um, way of practicing. So you're trying to focus on a mantra. Clearly, you know, thoughts are coming in. You allow them to come in, they go away again. Then others come in, they go away again. It's just a... Can you tell us one more time, what exactly do you do now? Uh, so I work part-time for a international development bank, which is headquartered in London, called the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Um, it's a very interesting organisation. We um, were set up to assist uh, the economies that came out of the Soviet system with a transition to um, kind of market economies and private sector-led growth. Um, and, and so after the Arab Spring, we moved into North Africa as well and so on. So we basically provide counter-cyclical finance typically. So, so when economies go through crises, as a lot of economies have done over the past 12 months, um, we're able to step up and, and do more to help them out of, the, out of their problems. So I do that part time. I'm also the director of a organization called uh, Property Share Market Economics, which I set up with my friend Phil Anderson. Um, and Raju mentioned his book earlier. 
Uh, and so um, we provide um, insights and research for people who are wanting to invest better. So we do an annual stock market forecast. We provide commentary on where we are in the cycle and what's likely to come next. Um, and as of next week, we're going to be launching a managed portfolio. Uh, so to so people can invest in line with kind of our insights about the cycle. So this is just going to be in UK only, all the investments? Actually, no, this is in Australia. So at the moment, most of our clients are in or our readers, subscribers are Australian. But over time, we'll be expanding into the UK and then um, uh, hopefully one day into the US. Great. So where, where do you see yourself in the next five to 10 years? Interesting. Um, well, I'm currently writing a book about kind of my research on on, on cycles and, and you know how the cycle breaks down into different phases and what you do um, as part of it. So I'd like to see that through. I think once that's done, um, you know, in addition to continuing with property share market economics, I quite fancy trying to um, convey some of these insights in in a different way in different medium. And so one thing that I've been toying with is actually moving into television or um, you know some you know some other format like that, more visual, um, where you can tease out interesting stories and insights and ideas based on that. I think that might make the make the kind of stuff more accessible to a different generation. Mm. What well, inspires you to keep going or doing whatever you're doing? I mean, I, you know, I, I do ask myself that <laughs> quite a bit, uh, particularly over the last year. Um, because you know it's quite i am quite busy and you know there's never really a, a much time for resting um so part of it is i like variety so i like doing different things i like being part of this large international organization that you know does good things um i like having my own thing on the side where i'm producing material that you know people won't have come across elsewhere um, you know, and getting, you know, I've over the years got a lot of positive feedback about that sort of thing. So I always get a um, a sense of, you know, doing the right thing when I when I see that. Um, uh, I think I think those are the two main things: a so variety and uh, and sort of positive affirmation. I suppose is is kind of what keeps me going. Um, but you know, I I as I as I said at the beginning what the reason I got into economic cycles and doing this was because um, my family's business, you know, had a difficult time after the financial crisis. Uh, and I, I did make it my mission at that point to develop material to make sure that neither my family nor any other family um, would have to go through that if they could avoid it. Of course, not everyone's going to know what I'm saying. Not everyone's going to believe it. And even if they do, they might not necessarily have the option to act on it but at least you know if i can help some families um do better and, and avoid problems then you know that that's you know that's my mission accomplished what does success mean to you i don't know and it's not really fixed you know it seems to get bigger or smaller depending on how i'm feeling so um you know there are you know we have business goals i mean we'd like to have um, you know, we'd like to have a certain number of subscribers to our newsletters. We'd like to have a, you know, enough, you know, people in the UK and the US as well. Um, and you know, we'd, so we'd like to. We want we want to see some business growth. Um, 
but you know in, in a sense that's relatively superficial i mean i think you know that's just a question of you know having a right marketing team and getting on twitter and start tweeting and get people to follow you and that's in a sense it's sort of success but it's not really you know it's it's not fundamental i suppose more fundamentally um the point i made about and this is a, the only way that i know this is through what people feed back to me is is people taking the advice acting on it um you know becoming wealthier having a greater sense of security and not being um negatively affected too much by economic crises and so on um and then other than that it's from a personal point of view it's it's to have fun doing it so um you know i you know i i feel i'm i'm probably always likely to produce some good material but i like to you know be working with people that i that I, whose who's company I enjoy, that we have a we have a laugh, that we're bouncing ideas of each other. I kind of thrive in that sort of environment. So it's not necessarily a destination. It's it's almost how you get there and how you go about it, which is which I think will will lead to a fulfilling life. What is your biggest fear? My biggest fear. Gosh, there's so many. Imagine you get a lot of these sorts of people on your on your show um, who have tended to do quite a few different things and, and to a certain extent become quite successful at it i think probably they and, and I, I certainly share this um is a fear of failure um and i think in my case it sometimes inhibits you from starting new things because you think oh it's not going to work out um which of course is 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 a very bad idea but um but you know there it is we're not we're none of us are perfect there you yeah, go. So you're creating limitations for yourself, basically, right? When you're hindering yourself to try new things just because of the past yeah. failures. What is your biggest why? Uh, why do I do what I'm doing? Exactly. Um, I mean, you, we. I think we have touched on it. So, um, so the why is it's not so much going for a, a particular goal necessarily, or if it is, I don't know what it is. I've not been able to articulate <laughs> it myself. It's, it's, you know, having, I mean, oh, don't get me wrong. I like, I like to be associated with things that are, are, are seen to be important and, and, and doing well. So the work that I do with EBRD, for example, is, is certainly that. Um, and also, you know, building a, a business where we, you know, I, I wouldn't say we're, you know, very high profile people as yet, but, you know, if we grow and, and so on, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, people will hear about us and, and our forecast and so on. So, you know, I, I like that sense of profile and, and so on, but that's, not, I wouldn't say that's the ultimate motivation. It's, it's more to have doing interesting, a lot of interesting things and having a lot of variety and not necessarily being sort of pigeonholed in one, in one particular area I quite like. Um, and so that's why I do so many different things, I suppose. Um, uh, and that, you know, and if I can help people along the way and have fun doing so, then that's, that keeps me going. Can you share one golden nugget with our audience? I've come to realize over the last few months in particular that um, the universe is full of people and things that are designed to help you. Um, and if you are open to that, um, you'll get everything that you need to succeed, to, to live the life that you want to live. Uh, and so to be, to lift your gaze up, 
to accept help, to ask for it, um, to recognize opportunities, I think is quite important. Great. All right, we got five questions rapid fire. One word or one sentence all. So who is the most influential person in your life? My father. What is the best book you have read or recommend? The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking by my friend Phil Anderson. What is your biggest passion? I'm going to say my football team, Liverpool. In one word, what does life mean to you? Steadfast. What is your favorite food? Oh, it's got to be a curry. A nice, good Indian curry. Yeah, Akhil, how can people reach out to you? Um, so if you are interested in following me on Twitter, my handle is at Akhil G. Patel. Um, and you can go onto the property share market economics.com website. And there's a lot of free resources uh, about sort of my research on economic cycles. Um, there's free downloads. So you can sign up to a free blog or you can sign up to become a subscriber as well. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Hope you have enjoyed listening to this episode. As promised, I have a free ebook for you. Seven reasons why real estate syndications build long-term wealth. Please go to my website, www.lumbainvest.com to download your free copy. Please tune into our weekly podcast, Vibe, Mind, Body, and Entrepreneurship. If you're listening live, please give us hashtag live. And if you are replaying, please give our podcast hashtag replay and give us a five-star rating. Also, if you like to learn about passive investing, please feel free to join our investors club by filling out the investor qualification form at www.lumbainvest.com. See you next week in the next episode with another awesome guest. We'd love to hear from you and get your feedback. Please follow us on the social media and connect with us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thank you.